capital being plentiful would logically be cheap. We closed off last episode, part one, with some of the tech darlings of the 1990s era, like Yahoo and eBay, and discussing how some of the biggest firms that we know of today started during that time period with the arrivals of Benchmark Capital and SoftBank and Excel Partners. So we were recognizing how the industry, the venture industry, was starting to gain some real competition. Now there were multiple firms competing for deals. It wasn't just the original Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins. And we discussed how companies started getting propped up much more because of their momentum and the hype around the company rather than the cash flows. We discussed how with Yahoo, it was a lot of this reputation that they saw other investors were betting big on Yahoo and Masasan came in with a massive $100 million fundraising round for Yahoo. And it created this reputation that the winners will keep winning. Just thinking about momentum and dot-com companies and anything that had to do with the internet or technology as a whole caused these expected returns to slowly be pushed down and down. This quote that I mentioned at the very beginning, capital being plentiful would logically be cheap, meant that with more and more competition, the returns people expected had to be lower and lower. That is really what started this tech bust of the early 2000s. It's in the late 1990s, from 1995 to 1999, all these internet and dot-com companies were getting funded by the arrival of all these new firms and all this new capital into the system, which slowly pushed returns down, and it caused this bubble to form around just momentum rather than their actual financial progress. We're going to dive into the origins of Google first, because they were really the saving grace of that dot-com period. They were the company that once people saw Google go public, they realized maybe this is signaling the end of the dot-com bust. So Google's story starts in 1998 with two PhD researchers, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They were at Stanford at the time and they were recognizing how there was this real opportunity in the competitive search industry. They saw Yahoo, but we spoke about on the last episode, Yahoo had this fundamental technological risk because Yahoo was manually using this selection system to get their page connections for search results. So Yahoo is using this manual method it exposed this big technological risk if someone else could think of a more algorithmic method of ranking the search results. Larry Page, Sergey Brin recognized that there is this method that they could algorithmically rank search results very similar to how academic papers and citations are ranked. So Malaby discusses, Google generated search results that were far more relevant than those of its rivals thanks to a system for ranking websites according to how many other sites had linked to them. Google here is using this method that, like we said, is similar to citations with academic papers. When you think of an academic paper, typically 
a very well-circulated, well-respected academic paper may have thousands of citations. It's that many people trust the results and they're citing the results of that paper in their own study. And it lends this form of credibility and trust that this is a study we could rely on. Google realized they could use a similar method for ranking their websites. Just like academic papers, the higher the citations, the more trust and reputable that paper likely is. And the lower the citations, the more that paper may be new or unestablished or maybe even discredited at this point. Google recognized the same thing applies to websites where for search results, most people want to see the websites at the very top that everyone else is looking at. And it's this trusted, reputable website. It's the actual website. And near the bottom of the search results may be the imitator websites or the knockoffs. Now, Google's search result method has changed a little bit since then, and it includes more recommendation and personalization now. But back then, this ranking-based system, similar to the academic citation system, was revolutionary for advancing searches' technological progress. At the time, people were saying Google's results were more than 10 times better and faster than their next closest competitor, than competitors like Yahoo. And that's a rule of Peter Thiel's. We'll speak about Peter Thiel much more soon, but one of Peter Thiel's rules are whenever he's looking at technologies, he wants to find some type of 10x improvement, whether it's a 10x technological improvement or maybe it's a 10x cost advantage. And Google's this classic example where their search results were 10 times better than the next nearest competitor. And it's what helped them really gain this initial reputation and strength around the core search business. And as we know, to this day, Google's core search business is an incredibly lucrative business. It's very profitable. It generates a ton of the advertising dollars. It's one of the biggest advertising companies, if not the biggest in the world. And this search business benefits from these winner-take-all dynamics, like we spoke about with Yahoo on the last episode. Whoever wins search, most consumers want to go to the search engine that delivers the best results and is the fastest. It has this natural winner-take-all power law dynamic. So Google, winning the search market, they've held that lead up until today. To this day, they have more than a 90% market share in search. 90%. The next closest competitor is a less than 5% market share. And many people say the only reason those competitors are there are because of some of the privacy concerns people have with Google, where they may prefer a company like DuckDuckGo, for example. So Google, in their early days, as Larry Page and Sergey Brin were developing this ranking-based search engine, they were first funded by some of the rich tech executives in the Silicon Valley space. Interesting to know, an interesting fact is actually that Jeff Bezos met them very early on, and he was one of their first angel investors. And this was really the beginning of that angel investing revolution. In today's age, we see a lot of former founders go out and 
They will back companies that are in industries that they're well aware of. They may have sold their own company and they back new competitors in that space. But back then, that was not really a precedent. And Jeff Bezos was one of the first people who came in as an angel investor, put, I believe, $250,000 into Google. And his investment in Google is actually the reason he first became a billionaire. That's what got him to a billion-dollar net worth before his Amazon stake had taken him there. So Google is getting funded by these rich tech executives, and slowly people are realizing the ingenuity and the strength of their search engine results. And at this point, most of the valley is really trying to get in on Google. And Google's realizing they have their pick of the litter because they're the hot company of the day. So they're able to select whichever VC firms and whichever venture capitalists they think are the best fit for their cap table and they could offer them the best resources. And at the time, we know John Doerr was one of the guys who was individually dominating. Sequoia was still a big presence at that time. And there was a super angel investor. His name was Ron Conway. We spoke about him briefly in the quit episode, but he's a super angel investor. He's one of the early pioneers of that early angel investing revolution that we just discussed. And Ron Conway was one of the first people to really see this potential in Google. And he was pushing to some of the institutional firms like Kleiner and Sequoia, John Doerr and Michael Moritz, that they should aggressively look to invest in Google because this is a winner-take-all market and Google may have the algorithm to crack that market. So the battle for Google's funding round really began and it was really between Sequoia and John Doerr. He was the dominant VC and there was this quote people said, there's this notion that if you get John and Kleiner Perkins as an investor, you could practically buy your Ferrari now. John Doerr was perceived as so successful and his reputation was so strong that investors just felt like if they got him on their cap table, he would push their firm to new heights and he also just backs these winning companies. So you would end up getting a big payoff later and you'd be able to get a nice thing like a Ferrari. Despite this, Google recognized that having both of them on the cap table would be advantageous for them in terms of strategic guidance and getting capital from two of the hottest firms. And that would further establish their reputation as this quote-unquote winner, next winner, like Apple was back in the day. So both VCs were looking to lead the round. Usually these big VCs tend not to partner up with another big VC because oftentimes one wants to lead the round and then other firms will follow on with smaller checks. But here, the founders really convinced both John Doerr and Sequoia that yes, their search results are much better than any of their competitors. They are likely to be the winner in this winner-take-all search market. But if they want to get in on the action, they have to split the deal. They can't fight over this, who's going to be the lead investor? Who's going to win this deal? Let's cut the other person out of the deal. Google wanted to have both of them, 
And both of them realize Google's such a good company that we probably should just give them their terms to get into this deal. So what ended up happening, the compromise, was that each firm, John Doerr with Kleiner and Sequoia separately, would each get 12% of the company for $12 million. And back then, that was really a big round. Today, we see Series A rounds or Series B rounds in the $100 million, $200 million valuations. But back then, a Series A round wouldn't really be a $100 million valuation. It may be 20 or 30 or 40 million if it's a big funding round. And this was right around the tech bust as well. So the fact that Google was able to go out and raise money at this $100 million valuation showed everyone else in Silicon Valley how strong their search results and their search algorithm really must be. And especially getting that validation, because we've talked about how VC, a lot of it is this reputation and validation game. Getting that validation from John Doerr, who was the premier venture capitalist in that era, and Sequoia, who was this historic firm going back 30 years, that was signaling to the rest of the market that Google was here as this winner company. It only took really a few more years until Google was ready to go public. So in 2004, this was really what I mentioned was the signal of maybe the end of the tech bust because from 2000 to 2003, that's when companies were really struggling, funding greatly dropped off and all those dot-com companies that were built just off of momentum and not off of cash flows ended up going out of business. All that spray and pray investing that SoftBank did into the 250 companies, many of those went out of business. So this period of 2004, Google going public as this strong tech company leading the search engine that most of the world relies on to this day and a profitable company in addition. And people thought this looks like it may be the end. This is the bright spot of that early 2000s decade where Google has shown the rest of the market that if you're the right company, if you're backing the right company, you can still get a great venture return, even in this down market, these down rounds. An important point that we should discuss that Google really started was the dual class ownership structure of companies. So we see this more often now where founders have this dual class ownership structure, which means the founders, every one share they have is 10 times more valuable for voting rights than an average person's common stock share. And it's what really led these companies to create this founder friendliness and to trust in the founders first. A big theme of this episode in the modern day VC era will be how companies and VC firms have progressively gotten more and more founder friendly. They've slowly gone away from that old model of replacing the CEO and taking these real tough stances on the board and recruiting a whole new team, new management team for the company. And they've slowly gotten to more of the mindset of Let's be friendly to the founder. The founders have an ability to actually succeed in this business and these technical founders can learn the business side. And 
we could give them these dual class ownership structures, which allows them to make most of the big decisions. It kind of keeps the founder in their seat. But at times, obviously, there could be issues with that in the sense of corporate governance. If founders start making poor decisions, but they have these super voting shares, this dual class ownership structure, it makes it very hard to go against the founder. It's something we should really look out for in the future because we've seen these massive downfalls of big companies, these hot tech companies who had this very poor corporate governance because VCs wanted to be founder friendly. They wanted to give the founders these dual class ownership shares and give them control of their own company. That's essentially what it is. You're giving the founder full control, but the issue is if they exercise that control too far, then there's nothing you could do to stop them. So that was a that was a trend that started really with Google because it was the strong company at the time. It was really dominating the search market. And as we discuss up until today, still owns 90% of the search market. So people were willing to bend over backwards to get into the deal, just like John Doerr and Kleiner and Sequoia were willing to split the Series A just to be able to fund Google even at that $100 million price point. Another important point we recognized was getting started with Google in the early days was this idea that companies in this modern era, these technology companies, are much more so intangible-based businesses. These companies are much more reliant on their intangibles, like the talent, as Arthur Rock would put it, that intellectual book value, the talent that you're assessing. And it's much less these tangible assets like a factory. Google is the search engine that needs the best engineers in the world, that talent, to develop the technology for their search algorithm. But they're much, much less tangible asset heavy. They don't have really factories. They don't have all these tangible assets. Now they have more tangible assets because they need to have data centers. But back then, it was really a very light capital business. They need much less capital. You're really paying your engineers, but you don't need this massive capex budget to go out and buy these buildings and factories and machinery. And you're benefiting from the talent building this software that can be distributed to people around the world at zero marginal cost. So zero marginal cost means that once you create the software, upfront, the software is typically expensive to create. This product is expensive because the engineers, it costs money to find the best engineers and to create this incredible search algorithm. But once it's created, the marginal user is no additional cost to your first user. So when we think of a traditional business, if we think of, let's say, a retail business, like a clothing business, if we want to scale that clothing business to over a billion people, no matter what we scale it to, we're always going to have that fixed cost on each piece of clothing. Even the billionth customer, we're going to have to pay for maybe the $5 to manufacture that piece of clothing, that t-shirt or whatever it may be. Whereas for Google, 
They spent a lot of money building the search engine up front. It's that high upfront investment, but the billionth user is able to use that search engine without any additional cost to Google. Google is able to scale this, and it's why these big tech companies have been able to get so big in the modern day era, because these companies can now scale to billions and billions of users without this massive marginal cost for every additional user that they add onto the platform. Google is really a crazy example in this regard. When I think of Google, I think it's really our connection to the internet. It's like the backbone of our internet because Google now has nine products, nine individual products with 1 billion users. And if you told me 20 years ago that one company would be able to scale nine separate products to a billion users, they would likely say that's impossible. There's no way. And it's very true that back then, a tangible-based business, a business that have these high marginal costs, like a retailer, for example, it is very challenging to grow to over a billion or multiple billions of users because the pure logistical nightmare of manufacturing for a billion people and the cost, you have to be a massive company to be able to afford those capital costs for those billions of users, it would be in a way unfathomable. Whereas Google, they're able to scale these nine individual products to a billion users with these products like Search has 3.5, 3.6 billion users. Some of the other products that are above that billion mark, Gmail, the big email provider, Chrome, which is the biggest internet browser today, YouTube, one of the biggest, obviously, medium form video services and content providers. There's Google Drive, there's Android, the big operating platform for mobile phones, Maps, their app store and their photo store. So being able to scale all these products is because of that zero marginal cost distribution. And these new businesses were intangible based businesses. They are based on this high upfront costs. You're finding the best engineers. It's really that intellectual book value as Arthur Rock put it, that's most important. And then from there, you want to scale it to as many users as you can because every marginal user just lowers your cost basis per user because you're not paying the cogs to create that next t-shirt or whatever the next good is in a tangible-based business. I want to be clear, zero marginal cost distribution does not mean it's free to acquire those customers. That is a very separate thing. Zero marginal cost means once a user wants to come on the platform, there is no cogs, there's no costs of goods sold to acquire that user. There's no manufacturing costs like making the new t-shirt for that user. Now, there may still be customer acquisition costs, which is like that marketing and advertising costs, to get the user to find your product. And in the modern day, we've seen those costs rise much higher. This customer acquisition costs or your marketing, your advertising costs has risen much more because there's much more of this competition. Now, we live in this world of abundance. So there's so many offerings now to capture your attention. 
which means that to stand out, to differentiate yourself, you may have to spend money, a lot of money, to acquire your customer. So acquiring the customer, that's like the advertising dollars to get them to come to your product. That is very separate than your zero marginal cost distribution. It's like if we think of Coca-Cola as a business, Coca-Cola does have marginal costs. They're not zero marginal costs because every time they sell a new Coke can, there is a marginal cost to produce that can. And for them, it's pretty low now because they've built this massive infrastructure around bottling companies around the world that will do it for them at a very cheap basis. So they have a marginal cost. They sell to billions of users, but they have a very low marginal cost. But Coca-Cola, to retain their brand reputation and their consumer mindshare, they will advertise a lot to keep acquiring existing and new customers. That really draws the difference between this zero marginal cost distribution, which the intangible businesses that have risen in the modern day, like the Googles and Facebooks of the world, they need much less capital, but they have those high upfront costs and they have to prioritize the best engineers, the best talent to create this distinguished software. And then on the other side is that customer acquisition cost, which is like the advertising, the marketing that gets customers to come to your product. And that exists and may even be higher for tech companies these days because they have to compete with so many other providers now. There's a lot of markets that are now saturated. So there's a lot of competition and thus you have to spend more on your customer acquisition costs. So we can wrap up this origin story of Google. We talked about how it was really this big, big hit winner because they took over the winner-take-all market of search and they raised funding from two of the best investors at the time, John Doerr and Sequoia Capital. They created this dual-class ownership structure, which was really the beginning of that founder friendliness and giving founders control of their own companies. And then they signaled the beginning of this intangible revolution where truly the talent matters more than anyone else. And these ideas, a lot of it comes from Brian Arthur's work from the Santa Fe Institute. He wrote this incredible paper in the late 90s called Increasing Returns to Scale. And much of these ideas are based on Brian Arthur's work around high upfront costs, intangible-based businesses, and then zero marginal cost distribution, being able to spread to those billion-plus users at no additional marginal cost. And as we know, Google has done that with nine separate products now, like Search, like Chrome, like Android and Gmail, and YouTube. Another key figure around this time that Sergey Brin and... Larry Page were working on Google was Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel, he has a very interesting background. It's pretty uncommon for some of the other Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. He went to Stanford Law School. He was someone who really thought about philosophy a lot, and I believe he studied that in undergrad. Once he graduated law school, he was working in trading, in securities trading at Credit Suisse for a bit. And it was around this time in 1998 as well that Peter Thiel kind of broke off on his own and started this small hedge fund near Stanford. 
And part of the time, as he was working on his hedge fund and he was in that Stanford ecosystem, he would do some guest lecturing. And he ended up meeting Max Levchin, who together they formed PayPal to tackle this payments industry that was not very developed at the time. So Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, they combined to form PayPal. Around the same time was when Elon Musk was first working on x.com, which would offer similar payments infrastructure for the internet and for connecting to these internet businesses. And x.com with Elon Musk was competing pretty directly with Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. They realized that if they keep competing like this, then it's just going to lead to bleeding losses. They're offering much of the same product and they're tackling the same market. So it would make much more sense to merge. Now, there was a lot of complexity in merging. Michael Moritz at Sequoia Capital, he was really instrumental in convincing Max Levchin to accept this merger because Elon Musk was trying to get a bigger stake of the equity, saying that X.com is further ahead in the payments race than PayPal is. But eventually, Moritz convinced Max Levchin to accept the merger, and X.com and PayPal decided to merge into just PayPal, offering this financial infrastructure for internet businesses. And these early days, Moritz kind of passed over Peter Thiel for the CEO job of PayPal. And he, in a way, didn't really see him as this manager type. He saw Peter Thiel as someone who wasn't from the traditional Silicon Valley mold. And because of that, Peter Thiel held a little bit of this grudge against Michael Moritz. So skipping ahead a little bit, after Google's IPO, this was a time that young founders started to become very against the old guard traditional VC firms. Those VC firms who would look to replace the founder with an MBA CEO like Sutter Hill in those early days, they felt that there wasn't much trust, especially when they may get replaced at a moment's notice. And a lot of these founders they decided they want to seek out angel investors instead because these wealthy tech angel investors like Bezos with Google and Ron Conway were another option for early funding. So at this time in 2004 was when Mark Zuckerberg started working on the Facebook at Harvard and offering this social network for college communities to connect with one another, these students to connect. And he quickly gained a lot of users. He was able to quickly expand to other colleges like Stanford and some of the other Boston colleges. And many investors obviously wanted to get in on his round. But Mark Zuckerberg was one of these big early founders, like these young founders who really didn't trust those older VC firms. And I mentioned the Peter Thiel story earlier because he as well held this grudge against Michael Moritz. He felt like he wasn't treated well as one of these original founders of PayPal, and he wanted to really change the system. Now, in these early days, Peter Thiel had gotten some wealth because PayPal was sold to eBay, but he didn't have an institutional firm yet. At the same time, though, he recognized this angel investing wave and realized 
he could invest in companies without being an actual VC firm. And that may even give him an advantage because many of these young founders like Zuckerberg actually don't trust the VC firm. To give an example of how far this deep mistrust ran, we could look at when Sequoia was pursuing an investment in Facebook and it was Roloff Botha who was actually the CFO at PayPal. So he was well-respected. He had recently left PayPal after they were sold and he joined Sequoia as this young partner on the investment team. And he was pursuing Zuckerberg. He was pursuing an investment into Facebook and apparently Zuckerberg liked Botha as well, but he still held this notion, this mistrust against the firm as a whole, Sequoia Capital. So he showed up to his pitch day dressed up in pajamas and he didn't pitch the Facebook. He ended up pitching his side project, Wirehog. The Sequoia Partners they were a little shocked. I mean, they handled it as best they could. They just continued through the pitch respectfully. But Zuckerberg made it clear that he didn't see this as the right fit for him. And eventually, Zuckerberg went off and raised 500000 from Peter Thiel as this angel investor for a 10% stake in Facebook. So that was Peter Thiel's real early beginnings in the investing space. He was one of the first investors in Facebook, and obviously took this big stake, 500,000 for 10% is a phenomenal stake into a business that's the biggest social network today. And this is really where we start to see founder friendliness become ingrained into the culture of VC. In today's era of VC, founder friendliness is pretty much expected. But back then, that wasn't really the case with the old guard VC firms, and that's a big reason of this mistrust with young founders. And Peter Thiel really started that ball moving of being founder friendly. He originally backed them as an angel investor, and then he eventually started the firm Founders Fund, which is another big firm today. It's a big VC firm. It's turned out to be very successful based on this premise that these youthful founders don't want to be backed by the old guard VC firms. They want to be backed by people who were founders themselves or people who understand that the founders can learn the business side. So Peter Thiel starts Founders Fund and he says about this, the name signaled the ethos. Founders who had created companies like PayPal were out to back the next entrepreneurial cohort and they promised to treat this new generation with the respect that they themselves had wished for. Peter Thiel is someone that I think we should all study more because he had very sharp insights about venture investing and really just investing in any vehicle that I think is useful for us to reflect on. So obviously, he started this founder-friendly movement in the Silicon Valley landscape. He's also one of the first people who directly acknowledged the inherent power laws of these VC firms and their fund bets. So Malaby says, but in a field ruled by the power law, Thiel was certain that a small number of huge, high conviction bets was better than a large spread of half-hearted ones. So they were constantly looking for that 
company that was the power law, either it's a winner-take-all type of company or one that could 100x and more than pay off the fund. And he found that multiple times with those bets like Facebook and SpaceX and LinkedIn. Another talk by Thiel that I, I recommend everyone listen to, whether you're in the venture industry or just an investor in, in general, is his talk, Competition is for Losers. I believe it was given to Y Combinator, and we'll start touching on Y Combinator in a few minutes, but it's this phenomenal talk he gave discussing how most startups fail because they enter industries with way too much competition, and although they may create value, it's very hard for them to actually capture that value. So that's where startups enter these competitive industries and you have to continue growing at all costs just to defend your market share that you can't actually capture the value. You can never actually become fundamentally profitable because you're in such a competitive market. He said, in the past, the present, and surely the future, a startup that monopolized a worthwhile niche would capture more value than millions of undifferentiated competitors. So he's obviously reflecting on the power law dynamics here, these winner-take-all dynamics where if you're able to monopolize a business, you're obviously going to capture a lot more value because not only can you set your price, like we spoke about on the Sam Zell episode, if you have a monopoly in a small local area, you can set your price while still being very profitable at that price. Whereas if you're in a competitive arena, you're always fighting your other competitors for that market share and for growth, for revenue, that there's a little bit of a race to the bottom effect, which means it's very hard for you to ever reach profitability because you're constantly spending more, investing more to gain more market share and to beat out your competitor. So this is something we should think about often when we think about investing in any type of business, like a VC business or even a cash flowing business or a public business where we want to invest in companies that have these good competitive dynamics. They have little competition or something that clearly protects them from the competition, or they see little capital inflows to their competitors, as in VC investors aren't backing new competitors because they know that company has monopolized the business. We can think of that with Google. Not many VC firms are backing new search engines because they know Google has such a strong monopoly over search. So that is a fundamental point of Peter Thiel's investment philosophy. It's this idea that competition is for losers. You want to constantly look for industries and companies that don't face these competitive dynamics because then they could actually capture the value that they create and be a profitable firm. So to close the loop on this rise of angel investing and founder friendliness, which much of it was defined by Peter Thiel, we should also discuss Paul Graham, who was another instrumental figure for really changing the way venture investing works and changing the way startups can find funding. Paul Graham was a successful entrepreneur and coder. He built a company called ViaWeb that he sold. And in these mid-2000s period, around 2004, 2005, 
he realized he wants to give back to the community of coders and entrepreneurs. And he as well didn't really like the traditional venture approach. He liked to be much more hands-on and help these companies with some of the early struggles they face. Paul Graham is really well known for some of the essays he writes where he speaks about either challenges or strategies, different things that he faced while running his own company and theories that he has on building companies, on building startups that he wanted to share with other engineers. So he decided to start this incubator program that's called Y Combinator or YC. And it's this sort of batched summer program where they accept a bunch of entrepreneurs, like 50 different companies, to work on the very early days of a startup. And they would get guidance from these YC partners, from people who have that startup founding and technological experience. So Malibu says, Y Combinator would incorporate the participants' startups, open company bank accounts, and advise about patents. Graham and a few of his smart friends would provide feedback on the young hackers' projects, and there would be dinner once a week so that the summer schoolers got to know each other. In return, Y Combinator would take equity, usually 6% of the shares, in each micro-company that it incorporated. So these are companies that are very, very early. Sometimes it's just one or two founders and an idea. Sometimes it's a very initial product. And Y Combinator is like this three-month fast track that gets your startup from this early idea to actually being somewhat of a venture-backable business. It's something that they provide a ton of guidance through their Y Combinator partners. They bring in guest speakers like Peter Thiel with his famous Competition is for Losers talk, or Jeff Bezos gave an incredible talk on AWS in the cloud. And they use this method of batching together a bunch of startups because all the students could benefit from collaborating with each other. They could give each other advice on how they solved certain problems in their early companies. They're all dealing with very similar problems if they're founding these really young businesses, even if they're in very different industries. So this idea by Graham is incredibly important at the time because it gave founders another alternative to selling a ton of your shares to a traditional VC firm. Now companies, and especially entrepreneurs who may just have an idea, can go seek out these incubator models like a Y Combinator, which is considered the best incubator, and they can see a ton of development on their company in a quick three-month timeline. Y Combinator is still known as really the cream of the crop for this type of guidance, and Paul Graham is still looked up upon amongst many young hackers and coders for approaching startup problems and seeking out wisdom from him. The last really important thing that was going on during these mid-2000s timeline was that China's tech ambitions as a venture capital hub were starting to develop. So we could trace that back to around 1999. That's when Alibaba, which is one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world today, was getting started from Jack Ma and his team of co-founders. They were devising this product, Alibaba, that would come in and help these Chinese businesses create this online storefront. 
And that's how it eventually evolved into really a full e-commerce platform. Over the next few years, Alibaba raised funding. They actually raised funding from U.S. firms like Goldman Sachs invested a big chunk of the equity and sold out early. SoftBank invested about $20 million, and that turned into probably SoftBank's best investment. They invested $20 million, which eventually gave them a $58 billion gain in Alibaba's IPO in 2014. But that was the early beginnings of China's tech ambitions with the founding of Alibaba. And it was around 2005, the end of 2005, when China's tech sector was starting to grow and Alibaba had really established itself as a big company. U.S. venture firms were starting to notice that there's a big market opportunity and economic opportunity in China. So here, Sequoia decided to get into the Chinese market by setting up a Sequoia China operation. And they wanted to find a local operator. They felt like that would give them the best chance for success. And they ended up finding this individual, Neil Shen, who has turned out to be a unbelievable investor and widely considered one of the best investors in the China venture investing landscape. So for Sequoia, it was important for them that the decision making was separate that's why they set up Sequoia China as its own local operation, but they're able to still learn the best practices from the main branch in Silicon Valley. And they did really a lot of integration work to make sure Neil Shen felt comfortable and felt like he understood the Sequoia playbook. It certainly helped Neil Shen that one of his first deals was one of Sequoia's best deals ever. So one of Neil Shen's first deals is a company called Meituan, and Meituan is a juggernaut in China right now. They dominate basically all services, the services business. It is a super app that can provide you food delivery, movie tickets, concert reservations, all different types of services that you imagine. Imagine you put DoorDash combined with Uber Eats combined with Fandango combined with massage services, any type of service you can imagine, you could get it on Meituan. The story of Meituan is super interesting. There's a little bit here that I want to include. Malaby says, in quick succession, he pursued a string of copycat ventures, churning out a Chinese version of the early social networking website Friendster, then mimicking Facebook and Twitter. In 2010, noticing the explosive growth of the U.S. discount booking website Groupon, he pivoted again. His new company would bulk buy restaurant tables, cinema seats, and retail goods at a discount, then sell them on to bargain hunters. So that is describing Wang Xing, who was the founder of Meituan, and he really took this early strategy of copying successful U.S. companies, eventually landing on Groupon and realizing he can offer these discount services if he buys the services in large quantity and then have the consumers in China buy them for much cheaper levels and he gets a certain profit margin off of that. The challenge with Meituan was that once competitors started realizing this is a big market, the company started facing insane competition. And that time was known as 
the war of a thousand Groupons. As in, there were that many clones of Groupon, similar to Meituan, that kept giving companies bigger and bigger discounts, like giving discounts to order food, for example, just to acquire customers. And I think that links really well back to the Peter Thiel point on competition is for losers. We see when a company faces this endless competition, you have to keep giving discounts and it's very hard for you to be profitable. You keep fighting for market share and for growth. So at this time, the main competition for Meituan was this company called Dianping, which is very similar to, if you imagine Yelp, it was this review service that was interesting because it allowed people to put their user thoughts onto those services and it builds that consumer trust. Just like we spoke about with eBay, you want those user reviews because it helps the consumers have trust before placing an order for that service. So this company was founded by Zhang Tao and it was actually also backed by Sequoia China which is very rare to find in the U.S., two companies being backed by the same VC firm, two competing companies. And obviously, Sequoia China, in this case, was encouraging them to just merge and stop this cash-bleeding competition. That's very similar to how we spoke about PayPal and X.com. If you merge, and a lot of that was the culprit Sequoia as well in the U.S., if you merge, then you could have this pretty much monopoly on the services business in China. And you don't have to keep giving bigger and bigger discounts, never reaching profitability. So eventually those two companies merged. They created this very valuable and profitable company that to this day, Meituan really monopolizes these local services like the food delivery and massages, movie tickets, any type of service you could imagine. And it took Neil Shen to the top of the global Midas list, which the Midas list is this ranking list for venture capitalists. He was at the top of the Midas list for three straight years. So this showed that Sequoia was kind of a pioneer by deciding to enter China in late 2005 as they're seeing that tech sector evolve. They found the right person to put in charge, Neil Shen, helped him integrate by constantly sending their top people to the China office and helping with those best practices, how Sequoia typically looks at investing. They were very fortunate by finding a deal like Meituan, which has turned out to be one of the most valuable companies in China, monopolizing these local services. And Neil Shen has continued to this day to just hit it out of the park with these grand slams. He's invested in Pinduoduo, which is another big e-commerce site in China. He's invested in ByteDance, which many people in the U.S. know their TikTok products, but ByteDance is an even bigger company than just TikTok, and they have a lot of Chinese offerings like Douyin. And Sequoia China is now really established as one of the best VC firms in China as well. We'll continue the story of the VC evolution in part three from the Great Recession to the modern day period of the venture capital industry. I hope you guys have learned a lot so far, have been enjoying it. I've certainly enjoyed this journey. And thanks again for listening.